Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and I know it's Wednesday, but guess what? We're doing a special edition of John Solomon Reports today, the podcast from Just the News, and there's a reason we're doing it. We've gotten one of the key figures in the Russia collusion case, one of the key witnesses, a former advisor to President Trump, who is breaking his silence for the first time on what went on all behind the scenes with the Mueller prosecutors, with the congressional committees, and the real story, why he was targeted. Yep, we're talking to Dr. Waleed Ferris today. So we're not going to do any monologues. We're not going to do any news headlines. We're going to go straight to this incredible interview. We've got more than a half hour with Dr. Ferris, and we want you to hear his story in the first person. It's the first time he's really talked about it, and he wants to set the record straight and also raise a provocative question. And that question is, was the Russia collusion case about something else other than Russia? He's got a pretty provocative answer to give to that. All right, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. Buckle your seatbelts. When we come back, Dr. Waleed Ferris in his first major interview describing what went on between him and prosecutors and congressional investigators in the Russia collusion case. I know you've been troubled by a lot of what's happened in this case. When you hear Dr. Ferris's story, I think you're going to be even more troubled. All right, first commercial break. We'll be right back. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as uh, promised, a very special guest, Dr. Waleed Ferris, one of the great minds in the conservative foreign policy space, joins us. Dr. Ferris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, John, for having me today. It's a pleasure and honor. Uh, it's my honor, too, to have you. Uh, before we get started, because I know we want to talk about Russia collusion and your experience with Congress and the media, 
Uh, I'd like to just introduce you a little bit more to our audience for those who aren't foreign policy nerds like me, because I'm, I'm always excited about foreign policy, national security. You have a very large reach. You've, you've advised Congress members, uh, presidential candidates. Could you introduce yourself a little bit just about some of the impact that you've had in testifying before Congress, advising lawmakers and uh, advising presidential candidates? Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. Yes, for those who are listening to us, I have been in this field, in this business, if you want, for the last maybe 27 years, 90s, after 9-11, and of course, all the way to the Trump campaign and beyond. As a professor, originally, I have testified to Congress already in the mid-1990s on human rights, terrorism, the jihadist movements. After 9-11, uh, you know, my, my role in educating the public and also lawmakers increased. I became an uh, analyst with MSNBC first and then Fox News for the last 14 years. But more importantly, I have briefed maybe dozens and dozens of members of Congress of a variety of committees, both parties and European uh, Parliament members. On the policy level, obviously, as it's known in the media, I have been appointed by uh, uh, Mitt Romney in 2011-2012 as his senior national security advisor for the campaign, and uh, in 2016 by then-candidate uh, Donald Trump as one of his foreign policy advisors. I have had many contacts worldwide with heads of states, prime ministers, ministers, national security advisors, and Probably to me as important, I have had a long engagement with uh, with the executive branch of our government, especially with the agencies. I mean, for the last 15 years, probably I have lectured and trained more than five to 6,000 analysts. So uh, it has been a whole uh, lifetime, if you want, uh, of uh, engagement in foreign policy and national security. Well, it's funny. I, uh, I remember the first time I was introduced to you uh, and uh, I, I was a uh, a intelligence official mentioned that I should reach out to you. And the first thing he said is uh, he, he saw counterterrorism coming before counterterrorism was even a thought in the FBI's uh, eye. And I think that your role in seeing the rise of uh, a radical terrorists and, and America's uh, slow adaptation to fight them was, was very instrumental in the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, a lot of people uh, should go back and take a look at your early work because you you saw what was coming. And also, I think you helped our government, particularly our intelligence agencies, uh, adapt to a new mindset that it wasn't about solving crimes. It was about preventing terrorist attacks. Yes, John. I'm actually, in the mid-90s, you're right. I was among the very, very few uh, experts. I was a professor at the time who were warning uh, our members of Congress and the executive branch of the coming of the jihadist strikes on the homeland. And when that happened after 9-11, that's why my role increased in training and, in, of course, uh, giving seminars. I then participated with uh, the chairwoman of the Subcommittee on Intelligence, Sue Myrick, in uh, forming the uh, Anti-Terrorism Caucus. It had at one time 110 members of Congress, both Democrats and uh, Republicans, and we focused, as you just mentioned, John, on predicting, not just on reacting to terrorism, but on predicting the ideological, political, security components of what is to come. That was done before ISIS and before the Iran deal and before uh, the rise of all these movements in North Africa, the Middle East, and even, of course, uh, as the these strikes inside Europe and the United States were uh, were multiplying. So that was a great experience. The second one, of course, were my books that were read by many 
across the government of the United States, in Europe, on campuses. Uh, I would name only three, but many of my readers remember Future Card of 2005, five, uh, Strategies Against America, The War of Ideas, uh, which was published in 2007. Uh, one very popular book uh, was The Coming Revolution, which predicted actually the rise of the Arab Spring in 2010, one year before it happened. My last book in 2014 was the uh, the Lost Spring. How we, you know, I was criticizing at the time the uh, Obama administration for two things in the book. One is that partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood that went against what civil societies wanted in the region, and the, and what became the Iran deal uh, later. So these were experiences I had, obviously, for the last 25 years that really marked my work uh, uh, in America. I could probably count on one hand the number of people in who the 1990s that were uh, as insightful and foresightful as you were in seeing what there. Maybe John O'Neill at the FBI and Richard Clark at the White House, but there were very few people that saw the the rise of uh, of this terrorist threat on U.S. soil, and you you definitely were one of them. And uh, it's a remarkable tribute to your to your wisdom in the work that you've done. Uh, I want to fast forward now to 2015, the beginning of the 2016 election. Uh, if I remember correctly, you started by advising some candidates like Scott Walker and Ben Carson. Is that correct? Yes. Well, tradition was that most advisors to previous Republican candidates, it was my case with Mitt Romney, 2011, 2012, were called in to help the new uh, number of Republican uh, candidates. And uh, I have advised either directly or indirectly about four Republican candidates, even before Donald Trump. Right. And then in December of 2015, you got a call to the Trump Tower in New York, correct? I did have a call, basically, uh, for a briefing. Uh, I think Mr. Trump at the time during that fall was meeting with a number of experts uh, in foreign policy and national security and he wanted to know a little bit more about their views uh, and their projections for the future. And so you met with the candidate for a while. I think Corey Lewandowski was there and, and you guys just talked uh, policy, right? Uh, particularly the Middle East. I think that was the primary focus, correct? Absolutely. The meeting was long. I mean, it was supposed to be maybe 40 minutes. It took less than two hours. Uh, candidate Donald Trump at the time was very curious about a variety of Middle Eastern issues. Who are the players? What are the threats? That fall, if you remember, he had been speaking against the uh, penetration by uh, jihadists and extremists uh, in uh, in the United States, all the violence that occurred in Paris and in here. So he was very keen to understand uh, what is the projection for these uh, you know, bad actors and what can be done. Uh, he was also discussing the issue of vetting. How can we vet? How do we identify them? And of course, in addition to the Middle East, they said the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, the, the various uh, tensions that exist. So it was a very, very uh, important session at the time. And uh, I ask this only because obviously you eventually got dragged into the Russia investigation. But uh, how much did Russia come up in that December conversation? In the December conversation, none. As a matter of fact, uh, we really focused on the Arab countries, Israel, U.S. role, um, and of course, Homeland Security. But I don't remember that uh, Russia was even mentioned in that meeting, not in that meeting. Yeah, let's let's put a pin in that for the re listeners and remember that, because when you hear what happens to Dr. Ferris later, it will it will turn your head upside down. But all right. So I'll fast forward a little bit for walk through people through this remarkable timeline. In March, you get announced as as one of the uh, foreign policy advisors for uh, uh, future President Trump. 
And then over the spring and summer, there's the typical interactions that you have with the candidate you're advising. Uh, and then in September, you uh, arrange, because it's in your sphere of influence, uh, for the president to meet with um, General Sisi in uh, Egypt, the, the current ruler of Egypt, uh, which was one of his you know, important foreign policy meetings. Describe how that came about. Let me be very specific here, because the first time I speak about it in public, that long memoirs, uh, but let me let me uh, address it. So I was in charge of, or I developed, uh, you know, the foreign policy explanation of the Trump campaign. Uh, not myself, many of us, but I, knowing languages, having visited countries, I would meet with diplomats and I would meet with, uh, you know, foreign policy experts. Uh, you know, it's, it was intense for, for many, many months. I, of course, went to Europe, and in Europe, I spoke to members of the European Parliament for about 27 countries, and uh, I engaged with uh, Middle Eastern leaders. I traveled to Egypt in September. I met with the uh, Minister of uh, Religious Affairs. I was very interested, John, in understanding how to make a distinction between the jihadists and the moderates. That was important for our research in the campaign, and of course, I have been doing this for the previous many, many years. I met also with the deputy pope of the Christian Copts because the president, candidate then, was interested in the protection of minorities in the Middle East. So I was doing field research and field contacts. Obviously, in the months before that, I have been interviewed by God knows how many uh, Arab media, including many Egyptian media, UAE media, or Jordanian media. And I have suggested in public that it would be very useful that the candidate, uh, candidate Trump, would be meeting as previous candidates have planned in 2011, 2012, as candidate Obama did by traveling to Germany, if we all recall, and speak in front of the Berlin Wall. So in, from that mindset, I was suggesting that uh, Donald Trump should be meeting with world leaders, including Arab Muslim leaders, because of the attacks against him. He has been really savaged by brotherhood, by the pro-Iranian lobbies, that he's an Islamophobe, he's a racist, etc. You know, so on as foreign policy people. So I suggested the ideas in the media. Now, obviously, many people, the campaign and elsewhere, and I pushed for the idea in, in, you know, in, in setting up that meeting. Let me add one thing, is that the of Egypt, Mr. Sisi, was coming to the United Nations General Assembly anyway, and he wanted to meet with the two candidates, which he did. So basically, our role was to suggesting and confirming the idea uh, from the media first and with whomever we spoke that this would be a wonderful idea. And the campaign signed off on it. The president uh, uh, attended the meeting, right, and uh, and got to you know, interact with the world leader in the in the middle of the campaign, as did Hillary Clinton, correct? Both Both met with President Sisi. Yes. As a matter of fact, John, the same day, uh, I was in New York. I was not at the meeting, but I was in New York and uh, President Sisi met with both. But, you know, there were many other presidents and leaders who met with That's what they do in the General Assembly at the United Nations. And uh, previously, previous candidates have done the same. It's almost a tradition. You go to the General Assembly, you show your international credentials. So that was only one of the many meetings that occurred. In my view, it was important specifically because of the criticism that uh, Donald Trump at the time was uh, was recipient of. Right. Now, that it was an important meeting, got a lot of attention. Um, and and uh, the election happens then. President uh, Donald Trump becomes the 45th American president. 
And uh, you don't actually go into the administration. You say on the outside. Was that your choice? So I served as a foreign policy advisor to the campaign really from the beginning of 2016, though I have briefed the candidate uh, end of 2015, but officially 2016, all the way till election day and few days after, then the transition would pick up. I decided at the time not to request to be considered for the administration and to stay in some sort of reserve if needed. I'll be happy to help, but I had many activities I wanted to continue with. And, you know, you are in a position where you do your activities in media, in, uh, you know, in, in relationship, in lectures, unless the administration would want to use you. So I am in that, I was in that reserve. So I did not join the transition. I did not join the, uh, the administration. The, um, as, you, as you began to watch the early presidency take fold, you saw what happened with Mike Flynn. He's forced to resign very early on. What was your impression of what was going on? Look, it was a very difficult time. First of all, we didn't understand what was happening. Uh, and I even made that public, meaning the issue of speaking with a foreign government when you are a transition. I remember during the previous transitions for Obama and previous transition for Clinton and, and George Bush that the sitting, you know, Baker administration would say, we're not going to do anything before we ask the elected administration. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was the different logic. So the State Department of the departing administration will tell their people, don't do anything. Let's always ask the, you know, the transition because they are going to be the new administration. So what was happening in, in, to, to the members of the Trump team was very strange. And as a professor in political science, I was wondering, Yes, of course, the transition should be actually talking with foreign governments and ministers. Actually, didn't we remember that the uh, president-elect was receiving phone calls and speaking with leaders? Of course, his advisors should be doing the same. So General Flynn, in his position, even in New York, was supposed to be speaking with these people. Now, the content of what he was talking about, this is, stuff, this is, this is the privilege of the transition. What they needed to do was to talk to each other that the transition and the sitting administration till uh, January should be talking to each other. And the one giving the guidance is not the departing one. It should be the one that has been elected. So I found it very strange that he was even interviewed about the tenor of his conversation. If it's a policy conversation, it will become public in 25 days or in 30 days. Why was he asked about it was really an enigma to me. And in your mind, uh, when you look back, was the Obama administration just simply having a hard time giving up the reins of power and not deferring to Donald Trump? Is that what it felt like as you watched it from the outside? Look, to be very direct and honest about it, and this is not the first time in history that it happens, not even in the United States, the Obama administration obviously was not happy, not just because Donald Trump won the election, but they knew that he was about to change it. So they were in full disagreement about a range of issues, including relationships uh, with foreign powers. The most important point that they were concerned about, and that was not a secret, was the fact that Donald Trump said during the campaign that he will be withdrawing, he will be canceling, he used different terminology, the Iran deal. And the Iran deal was the major strategic achievements of the Obama administration. So definitely they were not happy with that point. And Donald Trump also and his campaign were talking about changing, shifting alliances in the region. He didn't want a partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood. And one of the second achievements of the Obama administration was a partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
And of course, relationship with regard to Russia, relationship with regard to China. So there was a massive change in foreign policy that the, the Biden administration was not happy with. But in liberal democracies, you've got to accept that change and become the opposition and then criticize. You cannot affect the change of an incoming administration. That's, a, that's a, a fascinating analysis that a lot of people haven't really grasped in terms of what was really going on in that November, December, January. They're listening in on Mike Flynn's calls because they don't want Mike Flynn and Donald Trump to change the foreign policy direction of the country that they had set with their own compass. But Donald Trump had a different co compass, a different destination, a different idea. And um, so you're watching this play out for several months. And then in September of 2017, my reporting indicates you get a knock on your door one day and there's a couple of FBI agents outside. Tell me what that was like. Well, that's a longer story. I'll talk about what I can talk about uh, at this point in time. But, uh, you know, at one point, of course, we will expand on it. Um, before that, in March, April, in the uh, hearing sessions about the Russia uh, investigation, the so-called Russia links to the campaign started, I found it very strange because during my time in the campaign, at least my time, I haven't seen anything uh, indicating that there was a Russia uh, you know, influence on, on, on the leadership. Now, Russia influence all the time, we can talk about it later, is, is what they do. They do it everywhere with all the campaigns, with everything they can influence. That's how, you know, Russians operate. I even should about it. But then I saw that uh, CNN posted my picture uh, during that time with other members of the campaign saying, you know, saying that these advisors had contacts with Russia. And my picture was there. I said, what? There was one country, one government I have not had any contact with, along with China, probably. It was Russia. I had contact with 20 countries, 40 countries, uh, including diplomats. Uh, day in, day out, I was meeting with all these diplomats and meeting with the lawmakers, but not with Russia. So why are they doing this? So I felt that you know they were focusing on foreign policy advisors. So there was a reason for why you know they were doing this. Then they spoke us as they did for many uh, advisors and they wanted to ask us questions i don't want to go into the details why john because the process is still on and you are one of the journalists the leading journalists who are reporting about it i want to wait for the entire process to be over to know exactly what was happening because until now i have no idea what was you know my role in it what why was i even considered but you're right approached me and they asked questions, and questions obviously were about, uh, you know, the foreign policy of candidate Trump. What was that foreign policy about? Part of it was, you know, the Russia issue, and are aware of their foreign policy interests. And since I had served during the uh, year 2016 as one of the foreign policy advisors, obviously they interviewed me, as they did with, I think, most of the other advisors. Right. And so these agents were working for Mueller. Eventually, you, you're interviewed by Mueller's lawyers as well. Obviously, nothing came of it, right? You, you weren't uh, charged. You weren't uh, accused of any wrongdoing. Uh, and then you're, you go before the Senate and House Intelligence Committees. And I just want to remind all of our listeners at this point, Dr. Ferris's responsibilities were not Russia. It was the Middle East. It was an entirely different area. And yet he's hauled before multiple congressional committees and, and, the, and Team Mueller. Um, what was the experience like when you were in the Senate and in the House talking to, to lawmakers? 
look for the house. It's uh, my testimony is out. I invite people to go and read it. Uh, I am now impressed with it because it was comprehensive, 130 pages. Uh, I hope the Senate will post and publish uh, mine as well. It had analysis. I mean, of course, they've asked me, both branches, both committees, asked me about what did I see during the campaign. And it was my duty as a citizen and as an actor then in that campaign to tell them, to share with them, you know, what, what has happened. So all the questions about Russia were very simple. I have not seen myself any Russian operation, any influence, but I did, I did something on my own to explain to them, you know, as a scholar, how Russia operates. And in my view, they were going in the wrong direction. The Russian leadership would not come directly to a campaign they have not established relationship with for the previous 10 years. I mean, I taught and studied how intelligence operates. I taught seminars to our intelligence analysts for 10 years. I know what I am talking about. It's not just the how the jihadists and the Iranians operate, but how, how any foreign hostile force operates with us. So it was first strategically, you know, uh, wrong to believe that the Russians will, over a few weeks, few months, decide to penetrate almost openly uh, a American campaign without, you know, triggering, triggering the interests of agencies, American agencies who are observing them. And the Russians are, are intelligent. Their influence was happening elsewhere, John. Their influence has been built years and years ago. All you have to do, and I mentioned this in the House uh, Intelligence uh, here um, uh, testimony, and of course in the, in the uh, Senate one, look at what RT, Russia TV, had as platform and who has been interviewed. Dozens and dozens of American politicians and scholars and experts. They were interviewed, especially those who had sympathy for Russia. Back to 40 years of either Soviet sympathies or Russia sympathies. So there is a whole part on the very left of our spectrum that has those relationships with the Russians. This is where the influence was. But then you move to the right side of it. Be very clear about it. You have many people in America, like for any country, the Irish like Ireland, the Jewish Americans are sympathetic to Israel, you know, French speaking with France. You had many people, many Americans naturally inclined to like Russia. So the Russians try to recruit there, try to move there, try to play. It's not 20 Facebook that is going to change, you know, the vote of 335 million people. I made that assessment available to the Senate and the House, meaning I was trying to tell them what to research. If they were really objective, they wanted to know what Russia was doing. This was the academic way to do it. Unfortunately, it was too much politicized. I mean, who met with the Russian ambassador? Okay, you meet with them for five minutes, just like some of the members of the campaign during a State Department-sponsored meeting in, uh, I think it was in Ohio during the convention, they met with the Russian ambassador. So what can you say in five minutes? And the Democrats were also meeting with the Russian ambassador. So to summarize it, John, I have tried to analyze it in a very objective way to help the government, to help the Senate, to help the House, and even hope that they would have listened where really was the influence not it was when you look back and i've had interviews and this is a, a theme that has really developed for me in the last couple of months i've talked to fbi insiders current and former i've talked to lawmakers who spent a lot of time rethinking everything that we've just been through over the last three years 
And um, the sentiments that are beginning to emerge across the board from people I talk to are what really went on, what the Russia collusion investigation was ultimately about was an attempt to criminalize ordinary behavior because there was a policy dispute between the Obama administration and the Trump administration about the future of foreign policy. Obama lost, Trump won, Obama didn't want to give up the reins. And I've heard that from many people, including uh, Dan Hoffman, the former CIA uh, station chief in, in Moscow, to Kevin Brock, the former intelligence chief for the FBI. When you look back now, what was the Russia collusion narrative, the investigation, the Hill investigations? What was it ultimately about in your mind? That's probably the greatest question, not of the year, John, and not just yours. It's the centuries. Uh, it's first century uh, question in American politics, because never before, as far as a student of American history as well, we've seen anything like that, meaning that an administration, a, a departing administration, would be taking action, political and other action, against an incoming administration to change a foreign policy. But I would say, and I would add for the first time something, because of relationship with foreign actors. Here's very serious as a historian I'm, I'm speaking, and I don't know, I don't have the information from within the investigations themselves itself, but I can see it in the reflection it had in the media. I had a huge and rough interaction with the media. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, all that block of the media, which was on the offensive against the Trump administration, has been doing so, in my view, not just for the Russia issue. They were very uh, defensive with regard to change of policy with regard to Iran deal. It was about Iran deal. Russia influence was minimal. Russia influence was also impacted by the Iran deal. And I'm going to explain it probably for the first time in the media now. When we released $150 billion to Iran under the previous administration, what did Iran do with it? It bought Russian weapons. So is it logical that the Russian leadership which was actually making money out of the Iran deal, would be helping an administration that was about to cut the Iran deal, that the Trump administration strategically did not make sense. So in my view, the push against the Trump campaign and then transition and then administration was on behalf of those who wanted to defend the Iran deal, to protect the interest of the Iran deal. That's a profound point, and, and a lot, it's not really entered into the discussions until very recently. Uh, it's only been in the last few months that a lot of key players in Washington who've really dug into this have begun to see what was going on, that this was an Obama administration effort to preserve its foreign policy direction and stop President Trump from enacting his, and that the crown jewel of that policy was was Iran. And ironically, you, you pointed out something that's very important. The Iran deal that the Obama administration gave was a huge benefit, a huge boon to Russia. It, it gave them much needed cash in weapon sales uh, to the Iranians, correct? It gave them more, John. Actually, beyond the money, the cash of the Iran deal, $150 billion, which was huge by itself, it allowed open markets in Iran. Here we're talking trillions of dollars. So Russians, Chinese, even many interests here in the United States and in Europe were to move in and make huge amount of money. So paying attention or not paying attention when the candidate, Trump, started to say, I'm going to move out from the Iran deal, he was telling everybody, I want to shut down your interests. 
And when he came in as a president, obviously he was not going in the direction of that interest, which explains better what happened to his administration rather than just a, you know Russian sympathy or Russian influence operation, which by the way was happening in all cam- in, in all campaigns during all elections. It's it's a standard operation that they do. How is it that our our Congress, our Senate Intelligence Committee, our own intelligence community didn't see this for what has happened? Uh, when when you look back, are there just blinders on? Do we have holes in our intelligence community, or do you think there are components in the intelligence community that have assessed this but have not been allowed to give this uh, alternate view, this dissenting view of of what really went on between Russia, Trump, and the uh, Clinton campaign? Look, my own little experience, very small, was my testimony at the Senate, mostly the Senate uh, committee and, of course, at the House. But the Senate in the summer of 2017, where the, the general direction of the inquiry was going, I made it very clear. I shared with them, Democrats and Republicans, that based on my experience of 25 years in counterintelligence, counterterrorism, and international relations, this is not how Russia operates. This is more of a change of foreign policy. I don't have the information about how that happened, you know, from an operational perspective, but we didn't see that debate, and we didn't see that debate because Congress was not interested in the bigger picture. They were interested in the smaller things. I mean, how many times did you speak with the Russian ambassador? They asked many of the uh, advisors and the witnesses. I mean, that is very low analysis. What they needed to do was to understand if what has happened to the Trump campaign and transition and administration was about general foreign policy. He, is, he has changed foreign policy towards the Iran deal. He has changed foreign policy regarding the Muslim Brotherhood. He has changed foreign policy. And that's why he has been opposed, not because of what Russia does to every administration. It was not debated even. It's amazing that we we've, we we got tangled in the trees and never got to see the forest until very recently. Now, the, you talked about your difficult relationship with the media and the way they've treated you. Uh, that continues to today. Just a few weeks ago, the uh, New York Times had another story suggesting you might have engaged in some wrongdoing around um, uh, the meeting with uh, Dr. Cease. And I want you to address those allegations because they didn't give you much of a chance to address it there. But you didn't take any money to set up the meeting with uh, uh, President Cece, correct? Why would I take money to set up meetings? I set up meetings for the last 20 years with, with U.S. leaders and foreign leaders, and I advise for that. Every meeting I conduct is on my social media, it's on my Facebook. So uh, what the New York Times has tried to smear me with is not different from what they did uh, in 2016 and before that in 2011, even way before Trump, when I was an advisor uh, to uh, Mitt Romney. I have been attacked by... Mother Jones, all the far left, the pro-Iranian, pro-Muslim Brotherhood publications for months and months. And the reason was simple. They were concerned and afraid that someone like myself, who understand the threats against America, I've published books, I've published articles, would be eventually part of an administration. I could have been eventually part of the Romney administration, did not happen. And when uh, Trump appointed me as one of the five first foreign policy advisors. Of course, they started a campaign in 2016, about a few months. The same players, uh, that the Washington Post and the New York Times and the, every other uh, what they call mainstream, in fact, it's opposition uh, media, 
uh, claiming that I am too dangerous and then I'm going to influence the administration. Yes, of course, I would influence the administration with my ideas. What do you think? How did Kissinger do? How did Zbigniew Brzezinski do? They come with ideas, with books, and then they propose them as a policy. So I was attacked in 2016 and smeared by the same uh, by the same media. And what was strange about this article by the New York Times is that it came say, last week when we are closer to another presidential election. What would that mean? They are always concerned that Walid Harris would be eventually invited to or used or listened to by the next administration. It's almost becoming like an automatic cycle. Uh, they, they argued that they heard from sources that I have been questioned about me trying to influence the Trump administration about what Egypt wants. No, gentlemen, I was trying to influence the Middle East and pushing them against the jihadists, pushing them against the, uh, the extremists and doing how? By going on the media. I appear in the media all the time. And precisely, and probably this is why, this is what the, uh, the opposition media in America is very concerned about my message. So they want to smear me and want to make allegations, which were, which are of course very wrong and, and, uh, and, you know, and, and just hurt me as a person, but they're not factual. Now, all through this process, there's an insinuation in the New York Times article that for a period of time you were under scrutiny, you were therefore radioactive. But in fact, the whole time, even while Mueller was investigating uh, or uh, in questioning you, uh, even while the House and Senate Intelligence Committee was um, uh, uh, in questioning you, you, you continued to work for our U.S. government. If they thought there was something wrong, they would have cut you off, Correct. Of course, I have been advising and giving lectures and seminars on the most sensitive matters of national security, which I'm not going to be talking about here, uh, all the time, all the time. I mean, all, I don't want to even name the agencies. I have, uh, you know, offered these seminars, as I said, and trained thousands and thousands of analysts, of special agents, of workers in the field. I have discussed the matters with you know, with generals, with policy and strategic, uh, you know, decision makers or strategic planners, as we call them. And then we have the Washington Post or the New York Times coming and trying to undermine my, my role. See, that, that, that's the pettiness of, of politics here. Yeah, it's, it is a remarkable story. So uh, you've never been accused of any wrongdoing. The Mueller team closed down without ever investigating you. The congressional committees didn't accuse you of any wrongdoing. Uh, you were working throughout this entire time uh, for one or more intelligence agencies, which means they didn't cut you off because they thought you were a bad actor. Uh, and yet there's these insinuations in the news media. Let me ask you just a, as we wrap up a, a set of rapid fire questions. Were the media and the uh, Democrats trying to preserve the Iran deal, working in cahoots to try to keep you on the sidelines? I think from my own experience, the media was receiving information from quote-unquote government persons, uh, and they were pushing the narrative that the Trump administration was you know, hurting U.S. foreign policy because of the Iran deal. That's where they attacked me about my statements on Iran and the Brotherhood. Any uh, any evidence that the allegations that were being bantied about about you that turned out to be unproven, obviously no one took any action against you, that they originated with the Muslim Brotherhood, given your long and tenuous relationship with them? Well, the New York Times article by itself, the last one, said in the beginning that they alleged that the government got information from an Egyptian source. What Egyptian source? Egyptian source, in this case, would only be the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. So now I am interested, uh, John, in knowing more about what did the New York Times know. 
I want to know if the New York Times had information about a dossier advanced by the Muslim Brotherhood, because every criticism in that article, I've received it already from the Muslim Brotherhood. Every criticism in that article, I've received it from the Iran deal supporters. So this is only going to be the beginning of my interest in knowing what was the New York Times, what does the New York Times know that I don't know, and you know what? Who is their source who is giving them that information, that dossier? That's a very important uh, point. And when you look back, and you've said something very profound today that I think will grab a lot of people's attention. Do you have any doubt that the Russia collusion case was really about stopping the foreign policy agenda of the Trump administration and specifically the rollback of the Iran deal? I believe from what I've seen over the past three years and a half that the main pressure coming to to, to influence or to pressure the Trump administration, including parts of the Russia investigation or so-called Russia investigation, was basically an effort, an indirect effort to uh, protect the Iran deal and the interest that the Iran deal provides. And uh, one of the agencies, this may be our last question to wrap up, one of the agencies I know you've done work for in the past in the field offices and are well known among agents who've been trained by you is the FBI. When you look back at some of the text messages between Pete Strzok and, and Lisa Page and other officials where they're talking about uh, we've got to stop President Trump and smelly Walmart people and um, uh, even the extraordinary exchanges around the fact that they believe, you know, the, the career agents believed it was time to shut the investigation down against Mike Flynn because he had done nothing wrong and yet they stop it anyways. And they're writing in their notes things like, uh, we're, uh, we, we, what's our intention to get the truth or try to trick him into a lie so we can prosecute him and get him fired? Does that FBI resemble the FBI that you, you did a lot of training with over the years? Look, the FBI I worked with, I love that FBI. I mean, I interacted with them, helping them in counterterrorism, counterextremism for the last 25 years. Uh, you know, as an American citizen, seeing those exchanges, it, it kind of shocks me. Uh, we are, we live in a liberal uh, democracy, but it, you know, it, it, it elevates my suspicion that there is something at a higher level that was happening because to stop a president, I mean, this is something that in our American history we haven't seen before. So I, I am eager to know from the current investigations what really has happened, because that is not clear to me. And are you confident you'll finally get to the bottom of the truth in, in 2020? I think with the speed with which investigation is going, I'm just an observer here, not even an actor. What, uh, you know, journalism investigation is doing, including yours and others, what the DOJ is doing. I have the confidence that we're going to get to the bottom of, of, of this very complicated matter. And I hope that Congress also will help, at least the parts in Congress that are willing to help. Well, Dr. Ferris, your story is one of the great untold uh, narratives in the, in the Russia collusion case. And I'm so grateful that you spent the time today for the first time to really walk us through it and to plant the seed in our mind that the Russia collusion investigation may have been a, a lot more about something other than than Russia. So we, we thank you very much for the time. I know our listeners greatly benefited from from your analysis and and the, you know giving us the facts of your of your story. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, we'll be back after the commercial break to wrap things up. But now you know why we did a special edition today of John Solomon Reports. Dr. Ferris's story is one you really ought to be thinking about. We'll be back in a second. All right, folks, that wraps up a special edition of John Solomon Reports, a special Wednesday edition. Now you see why we did it. Dr. Waleed Ferris with some really remarkable 
inside storytelling of what really went on in the Russia collusion investigation and one of its possible motives. Why was a case involving an advisor who was involved in the Middle East suddenly referred to uh, Special Prosecutor Mueller? Well, the answer may lie in the Obama uh, folks' desire to keep the Iran deal from being unraveled by President Trump, Mike Flynn, Waleed Ferris. It's a fascinating story to think about. It's Dr. Waleed Ferris's first time talking, and now you got something to chew on and think about. As you head into uh, the weekend, I want to just remind you about one thing. We've got a brand new store at justthenews.com. It's at jtnshop.com. That's jtnshop.com. If you go there, we have all sorts of gadgets and gifts. There's a collector's coin for Donald Trump. There's a uh, uh, some gadgets, particularly my favorite, the Clean Phone Pro that cleans your phone and sterilizes it from germs. And uh, because I did it from both my dad and my father-in-law, there's one super great gift for Father's Day, lobster and king crab tails. Oh my God, you want to get these? These crab legs are killer. I ordered a set for myself. I can't uh, stop thinking about how I'm going to boil them up and eat them on Father's Day myself. Spoil yourself, spoil your dad. Go visit the store. And when you do so and you buy something for JTN Shop, justthenews.com shop, you will be supporting our journalism in this podcast. I think that's worth doing. All right, folks, we'll be back tomorrow, our regular day on Thursday, for another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com.